0: Daniel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Daniel writes, At that time, Michael shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life. Some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel... Shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. In the last chapter of Daniel, the angel provides a fitting description of the end times in verses 1 through 4. And then later, he's going to talk about the duration of the end times in verses 5 through 13. In the description of the end times, the angel speaks of a prince who's going to provide supernatural protection and at, at a time of unprecedented trial and sorrow in verse 1. The angel also speaks of deliverance and hope for those who persevere. There's a recording book that seems to be kept by God. The book seems to be kept in heaven. The suffering will lead to an event of epic proportions, a resurrection of the dead, and everlasting rewards, and everlasting punishments we might think about this as a day of separation. Dark days will also bring opportunities to shine in verse three. And so then in verse four, the prophet Daniel is instructed to steal up the book until the time of the end. And either a brief glimpse is given to us of the future, or perhaps it is both a glimpse and a promise to help us understand the future. And so in this final word, it begins with a description of a time of suffering. Look at verse 1. At that time, Mishael, Michael, shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, and at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Since the verse begins with, at that time, what time is that? We discovered that this is the time of the end. This is the time that the book of Daniel has been telling us constitutes what's been called the time of the great tribulation. And so at that time, this time that has been set aside, that began with chapter 9 concerning the times. And then remember this vision began in, verse, in chapter 10 concludes here in chapter 12, there is a prince who guards or stands watch over the sons of your people. This can't be any other people other than the Jewish people. These are Daniel's people. They are Jews. And the Bible makes it clear that Michael is the guardian of Israel. He seems to be the guardian of Israel that has been set aside for this time that Daniel has revealed that we've seen is called the time of the Gentiles. The time of the Babylonians and the Persians. The the Greeks and the Romans. And then we see this final consummation that's going to take place at the end of the age. So this is the same Michael that fought the prince of Persia in that invisible war that was being waged all around us. Remember in chapter 10, verse 13, this angel was tasked with the preservation of Israel in order to fulfill all of God's plans and all of God's promises concerning his people. We discover elsewhere that this angel is called archangel. In Jude chapter 1 verse 9, in Daniel chapter 9 verse 13, he's called one of the chief princes, which implies that there are other creatures of similar rank and similar powers. We're left with the impression that without Michael's help, without his preservation and protection that was being extended to the Jewish people, they most certainly would not survive. And we see this happen throughout the history of the Jewish people, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. So history is littered with Satan's repeated attempts to destroy the Jewish people. And again, it seems interesting to me that if you look at each of the Gentile powers that are talked about in the book of Daniel, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, each and every one has participated in the reduction and the planned elimination of the Jewish people. The Babylonians killed hundreds of thousands of Jewish people when they destroyed Jerusalem. We see again this this repeated attempt on the part of Haman and the Persians to later destroy the Jewish people. Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek elects to try to destroy the Jewish people. We see in 70 AD the Romans are going to level the city of Jerusalem and disperse the Jews throughout the Mediterranean. And so, we could easily document the persistent persecutions that have taken place in all of these times. Persecutions in the Middle Ages, persecutions pogroms and programs under czarist Russia, extermination camps in Germany. In the New Testament, Satan misquotes Daniel, or excuse me, Psalm chapter 91 verses 10 and 11 in an invitation to tempt Jesus. You'll remember it says, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come upon near your dwelling." For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all of your ways. When Satan says those words to Jesus, there is a prophetic statement of preservation that was given for God's Messiah for supernatural protection. The big question that we have to ask ourselves is this. If it has been this bad for the Jewish people in times past, how bad will it be for the Jewish people in the future? The New Testament gives us additional information about this future time. And so it's really important that you understand the difference between tribulation, persecution, problems. And this time that's called the great tribulation, a specific amount of time that's been set aside in order for God to judge the world. And remember what we've often talked about in this book of Daniel, that prophecy typically has one of two responses that people have. It terrifies us or it serves as an opportunity to purify us. And we're gonna talk about that a little bit more. And so, in his book, 40 Days Through Daniel, my friend Ron Rhodes presents several facts that differentiate between persecutions, tribulations, and this time that's been set aside, the great tribulation. He writes, Number one, scripture refers to a definite period of time at the end of the age. That's Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 35. Number two, this time period that's been set aside will be so profound and so severe that no period in history in the times past or future will equal it according to Matthew 24:21. So he says it's a definite time, it's a severe time, and then it's a shortened time for the elect's sake in Matthew chapter 24, 22. Otherwise, no flesh would survive. And so when this abrupt and final moment appears, it's not going to be dragged out for a long, long time. It's going to be brief and brutal The period is going to be so bad that repeatedly it's called throughout the Bible the time of trouble, the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's sorrow. That's how it's described in Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7. And here in this passage of our study, the nations will be judged for their sin for the rejection of Jesus, for their persistent persecution of Israel. The period is going to last seven years. We know that from Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 and 27. Also, at the end of this chapter, in verses 5 through 13, the period is so horrific that people will want to hide There will be repeated calls on the part of people that they wished that they were dead, Revelation chapter 6, verse 16. So several Bible scholars have mentioned that the horror of this period, the trial and the terror that's going to be generated from this period, it's impossible to overstate. The book of Revelation spells out these horrors in graphic detail. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Saving Private Ryan or you saw the movie Hacksaw Ridge, which was a film by Clint Eastwood. They talk about these specific moments in World War II and, and the, the, the things about these particular movies is they're so terrifying because they graphically portray war in all of its unvarnished circumstances. The book of Revelation also seems to give us graphic, horrific details. The book of Revelation describes a time of global conflict, pandemic disease, geological and astronomical catastrophe, We're given a series of judgments that are unleashed upon the planet Earth that makes the judgments that appeared in Egypt during the time of the Passover and the liberation of the Jewish people from Egypt seem almost welcome. In the sealed judgments, a rider on a white horse, the Antichrist, goes out to conquer and make war in Revelation chapter 6. And we see in Revelation chapter 6 this almost simultaneous revelation that has already taken place in the book of Daniel chapter 10, Revelation chapter 6, mirroring the events. So there's a seal, a second seal, judgment where peace is taken from the earth and the killing of people results in catastrophic genocidal levels in chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. There's a third sealed judgment where widespread famine emerges, almost certainly because of the global wars. And so we see this series of circumstances. Antichrist shows up. War shows up. Famine shows up. And with the famine in the third seal, there also is transportation system shutdowns, Food delivery shutdowns are brought to a halt. In the fourth seal judgment, it describes massive casualties that result from widespread famine and pestilence over the entire earth. This is complicated by predatory animals that savage the remaining populations in verses 7 and 8 of Revelation chapter 6. With the fifth seal comes a massive amount of people who are murdered God's people, people who identify with God and the God of Israel, with people who find themselves identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ, they are murdered without mercy in verses 9 through 11. And since it says that this time is going to be so profound and so severe, and it's going to be unlike any other time, I happen to be reading Paul Johnson's book, Modern Times, which details the unfolding of human history from 1920 to the 90s. It talks about the totalitarian states of Lenin and Stalin and also of Mao Tse Tung and of Hitler. And there is described literally tens of millions of people who are killed From the end of the 1930s and 1940s to the Cultural Revolution in China in the 1940s and 1950s, it's safe to say that over 100 million people were killed in the 20th century. And when this event takes place, it's gonna be worse. It's going to be way worse. With the fifth seal comes massive numbers of God's people murdered, the sixth seal comes and it describes an earthquake, an earthquake of massive destructions that if anything is left standing, it's an anomaly. This is accompanied by astronomical cosmic disturbances. Some scholars suggest that the entire planet in some way is going to somehow be shifted in its rotation. It's going to cause a catastrophic shift, which is going to cause all of the continents in the Earth to experience a massive earthquake. Whatever is left of the human population they begin to struggle and look for some sort of reasonable shelter. A third of the sun, moon, and stars are darkened by the sound of a fourth trumpet in chapter 8. The sun is darkened by the smoke of the abyss of the fifth trumpet in chapter 9. The sun scourges the inhabitants of the earth with fire and heat that might cause the fiery furnaces in the book of Daniel to seem like a relaxing day at the spa in the final seventh sealed judgment. It's going to release a series of trumpet judgments that are even more catastrophic than the sealed judgments. And you might ask, how is this possible? How could it be worse than what you've already described? In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus mirrors John's catastrophic vision of the end, false Christ, wars, famines, earthquakes, increase in martyrdom. In Revelation 8, we're given a description of fire that scorches the earth, hail. A third of the earth is burned up. A third of the trees are burned up. A third of everything that's green is burned up. The climate change alarmists aren't entirely wrong. In what sense? The earth is on a crash course to a climatological catastrophe. And yes, the climate alarmists have got it right. The problem is man. But it isn't Carbon emissions, that's the problem. The problem is human sin. Something has gone wrong inside of the human heart. And guess what? The entire world is going to reap the consequences of this global judgment. Will God allow human beings? to use nuclear devices in the future. I'm going to suggest to you something. God has allowed human beings to use nuclear devices in the past. They were used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. When the first bomb dropped, 100,000 people were evaporated. Another 100,000 people died within the next 90 days. It makes perfect sense to me that God may allow a limited thermonuclear war that brings about a certain kind of judgment. What else could burn one-third of the planet Earth? The book of Revelation describes... A fiery mountain that comes out of the sky and literally is dropped into the ocean, which creates a climatological and an ecological catastrophe with the death of marine life and the complete disruption of the food chain. That happens in Revelation chapter 8. Daniel is told by this angel, in spite of an ever-increasing judgment, there's going to be a remnant of Jewish people who will survive to the end. In the old King James, the text reads, at that time, thy people shall be delivered. Everyone that shall be found written in the book I've got to tell you something. It's a pitiful minority. This isn't, this isn't a huge population of people. How do we know? Because of Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8, where it says, In all the land two parts shall be cut off and die, but a third shall be left therein. The Bible pictures a future in the Middle East, where two out of every three Jewish people ceased to exist. I need to tell you something. From 1939 until 1945, one out of every three Jews in Europe were killed. This is going to be worse. and. Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 38 seems to say the same thing. It seems to pronounce this crushing verdict of persistent unbelief that has happened not only to the world, but to the Jewish people that's going to cause a judgment of catastrophic Proportions. In fact, if we're reading Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 correctly, the armies that gather to wage war against Israel that come in this future time period, five sixths of the combined armies that confront one another in this final moment are going to die, and only one sixth survive. And so, when the angel says, At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as was never since there was a nation, even to that time, and at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who's found written in the book. What book is the angel referencing? What in the world is he talking about? Well, Moses speaks of such a book in Exodus chapter 32, verse 32. Do you remember where Moses was pleading for the life of his people and the preservation of the Jewish people? Because God had said after the incident of the giving of the Ten Commandments and the golden calf situation, and he goes, I'm going to blot them out. And Moses says, no, no, blot me out of the book. If you're going to blot somebody out of the book, blot me out. Moses offers his own life rather than disinherit the Jewish people. He says, blot me out of your book, which you've written in verse 32 of Exodus 32. And the Lord said to Moses, quote, whoever has sinned against me, I'm going to blot him from my book. Verse 33 Does that simply mean death? Could this be a way of saying that those who are set aside for death are going to die and those who are set aside for preservation are going to be preserved? Or is this a book that contains all the names of all the people who have ever lived and will die and be saved? The Bible speaks of the Lamb's book of life in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. Again in chapter 17, verse 8. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, there's this description of a book where God in his grace, and his mercy, has been keeping a record of everyone who has ever lived, everyone who will or won't enter into eternal life. Daniel insists that there is a remnant that's going to survive. A remnant that will remain. And for the remnant that will embrace God's Messiah at the end of the tribulation period, there is going to be a supernatural protection and preservation. And we learn elsewhere that the forces of the Antichrist pressing down on the people of Israel will in some sort of fashion bring about this amazing revival. The book of Revelation speaks of Jewish people, 12,000 at a time, being set aside, who will provide a supernatural witness to a watching world in Joel chapter 2 verse 28 it says and it will come to pass afterward that i will pour my spirit out on all flesh your sons and your daughters will prophesy your old men will dream dreams your young men will see visions and also on my men servants and my maid servants i will pour out my spirit in those days. Whenever the Bible talks about in those days, it's a reference to this final moment, these final days. Some have suggested that because of the dire threat of the Antichrist and the armies pouring into the Middle East, the Jewish people will begin to plead. They will pray and plead for the return of their Messiah who will save them in Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10. Matthew chapter 23 verse 27. Isaiah chapter 53 verses 1 through 9. The Bible describes it as a time of unbelievable suffering. But it's also described as a time of separation. Look at verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Remember, this is an angel that's speaking to Daniel who's recording these events. And all of a sudden we have the idea that we step back and we see a panoramic picture of what's going to happen in the future. If you walk outside the doors of this church and you look directly west, you know what you're going to see? You're going to see the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. We're in a valley. You have to drive some 5 to 10 miles east of us. And if you drive, you come up out of the valley and you'll see glorious Fort thousand foot mountains just in back of those foothills. You can't see them from where you are right now. In this particular passage, the angel invites Daniel to take a step back and now all of a sudden you see this time, this time that he calls a time of the resurrection. And so for those who dispute the mention of the resurrection in the Old Testament, this is it. Here, he's speaking of a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. And it says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. There are some left-leaning commentators who suggest that Daniel's just referencing not an actual resurrection, but some sort of moral and national revival. The unbelieving commentator will say, hey, guess what? This guy's writing to Daniel and his people who are suffering captivity in Babylon, and he's making reference to some sort of spiritual revival that's going to cause people to wake up from their spiritual death Death and understand that in order to come back to life, they're going to have to believe the promises of God. I don't think that's what's happening in the text. I think what's happening in the text is real people are being really resurrected from the dead. Most people who enter into this period called the Great Tribulation, most of them will die. For the person who says to me, look, if what you're saying is true, if the Bible is true that there's going to be a rapture of the church, and if the Bible is true concerning what it says about Jesus and what it says about what it means to have life in Christ, and and if all of this stuff is true, then if I go through the, the tribulation period, then I'll accept Christ as my Savior. And I'm here to tell you that if you can't live for Jesus right now, the chances of you dying for Jesus later become more remote and more remote. The good news for God's people is that death isn't the end. The good news for God's people is bad news for everyone who concludes that God's grace isn't sufficient. And God's Messiah will never come. And God's gospel need not be heard or believed. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save it. I was watching a documentary on the life of Billy Graham from the time of 1949 and his perfect, First, public recorded crusade that he had in Los Angeles, all the way to his dying day, he repeatedly said the same message God loves you. God sent his son Jesus into the world to die a painful death that you deserve so that you could experience hope and grace and mercy and the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with the Father. He preached this message in Russia. He preached this message in China. He preached this message in Romania. He preached this message in Central and South America. Wherever he went and whoever he spoke to, he reminded them that this Jesus who died on the cross also rose from the dead. He rose from the dead to prove that his message is true. All people will one day share in the resurrection. But not all people will share the same destiny. The Bible says that there are two deaths. And there are two resurrections. And there are two destinies. In John's gospel, Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 28, Do not marvel at this almost certainly Jesus was thinking about the passage of scripture that we're reading this morning. He says, I don't want you to be blown away for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Daniel Listening to the angel says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. It's my understanding, if I'm reading this correctly and if I've done my homework properly, that Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 is the first mention of those two words together in the Old Testament. Everlasting life, everlasting life. There are two deaths. There are two resurrections. There are two destinies. In the New Testament, Jesus told Martha at her brother's gravesite, I'm the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, they will live. Paul told the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 21 He will change our weak mortal bodies and make them like His own glorious body, using that power by which He was able to bring all things under His rule unquote. That's his supernatural power. The same Jesus who rose from the dead said, you will rise from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the dividing point, not only in human history, but it's the foundation of our faith. It's also proof that Daniel's prophecy of a future resurrection will be necessary for all. The Bible teaches that the future resurrection includes both a body and a soul. Your body is going to go into the dirt. Your soul, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, is going to go to heaven. The resurrection is a certainty. And why is it a certainty? Jesus makes it clear that it must happen. And he proves that it must happen by pointing to himself as the reason why it must happen. And the apostle Paul adds in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we as believers merit only pity if in fact the resurrection is a hoax or a fiction or a lie. Our resurrected body will be eternal and different. Our resurrected body will not be bound by its present limitations. And some have suggested the reference here to sleep suggests that the dead are unconscious or unaware. But nothing could be further from the truth. The dead are very much aware of where they are. Your unsaved family and friends who die in their sin rejecting Jesus and the gospel are aware of where they are and what they've done. The repeated testimony in the New Testament is the believer is alive and aware and in the presence of God in Revelation chapter six, verses nine through 11, Philippians chapter one, verse 21, second Corinthians chapter five, verse eight, to be absent from the body, being present with the Lord. It's a time of suffering, but it's also going to result in a time of separation where one group of people are gonna go in one direction and another group of people are gonna go in another direction but it's also gonna be a time to shine. Look what it says in verse three. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Here, the angel says to Daniel, those who are wise shall shine. Who are the wise? The wise are the people who know the true God. The wise are those people. The wise are those people who have seen through antichrist's deception. The wise are those people who trust the Lord Jesus as Savior. The wise are those who by grace through faith in Christ and God's word come to a right knowledge and a right understanding of what God wants and what God desires. To shine in glory. This is the privilege of the saved. And those who turn many to righteousness. Is a reference to everyone. To everyone who pleads. And prays. And tries to convince others. To turn from their sins to abandon their rebellion and disobedience against God. To say, I'm not gonna do this anymore. I'm going to walk away from sin and I am going to embrace Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. Well, what about those who only exercise a subtle influence towards righteousness? Yes, you too! In what sense? Everyone, everyone, everyone is pushing people towards heaven or away from heaven. You're doing it with your children, with your grandchildren, with your family and friends and the culture that you live in. We all have different capacities to reflect God's glory. But we all will reflect God's glory. And that's why I think it says, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. There are different stars. They're in different places with different luminosity. And we're all in different places. We're all living in different times. We all have different spheres of influence. To shine in glory is the privilege of the saved. And you're never brighter than when you find yourself in a dark place, in a tragic place, in a difficult place. Solomon begged the Lord, give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong." For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Truly, who can govern a family or a business or a church or a nation? Wisdom begins when we ask the Lord to be our supply. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge to everyday life. We are made wise when we study God's word and believe God's word, and then we trust the Lord. When you trust in the Lord, you have at least the possibility to think and act and speak in wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to see life from God's perspective, and then to know the best course of action or direction to take because you've asked the Lord to help you make that decision. And just like at every dark time ever in history, it becomes the opportunity to shine. Patrick is thrown into the dark abyss of paganism and Druidism. Of witchcraft and wickedness. He is kidnapped. And then he's restored to his own family and friends. And then God calls him. God speaks to his heart. God speaks to his heart. And he says, I want you to go back to Ireland. And I want you to tell those people living in darkness that there's hope, that there's grace, that there's mercy. In World War I and World War II, it gave unprecedented opportunity for acts of selflessness and sacrifice. What do dark times do? They give us the opportunity to shine. And look what it says in verse four. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. What does that mean? Daniel is instructed to preserve the vision that's in the book. Some people will suggest shut up the words and seal the book might mean you won't be able to understand it. I can't accept that as the meaning of that particular passage. Because over and over and over again, the repeated testimony in this book has been, listen, understand. I am willing to concede that this phrase has something to do with preserving the revelation. And remember, the vision began in chapter 10, continued in chapter 11, and is now about to end there seems to be some indication that a future generation, a final generation, is going to receive the most amount of benefit from its mysterious content. Shut up the word, seal the book. Scholars are divided over the phrase, many shall run to and fro, knowledge shall increase. Well, does this mean an ever-increasing ability to travel? Does it mean a virtual explosion of scientific and technological information? It might mean that. Or does it mean that during the tribulation period, people will open this book, study this book, look at it? chapter by chapter and verse by verse in order to try to discern what's really happening in their world and in their life. Darby translates this, quote, many shall diligently investigate. Tregelis renders it, quote, many shall scrutinize the book from end to end. That's what I've tried to do with you. In chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. I know you guys, man, 11 was hard. Yes. (laughs) We tried to scrutinize it from end to end. So that we have some idea of how it's all gonna end. The vision began in chapter 10. What will happen to Israel in the future? Daniel describes the conflicts in chapter 10, the chronology of the conquerors in chapter 11, the chronology of the closing conditions in chapter 12. Here's what we know. There's going to be pain and suffering and sorrow and terror and horror and persecution and genocide. But Israel's going to survive. Israel's going to survive. Israel's going to survive. God's going to bring a Messiah. The Messiah's going to come. The Messiah is going to and the Messiah is going to be cut off but God's going to keep his promise there's a promise that Israel's is going to survive there's a promise a time of separation is going to take place some people are going to go and receive an eternal reward there's going to be a group of people That are going to be separated from God forever. There's going to be a time of suffering. There's going to be a time of separation. But there's also going to be a time to shine. There's going to be a time to show up and tell the truth about God, about Jesus. And then Daniel's instructed to seal the book. After this brief description, the angel is going to give a mysterious message concerning the duration of how long all this is going to last. Three separate time periods are specified. 1,260 days. 1,290 days. 1,335 days. What is that? These are the final days of the last half of the great tribulation. What exactly does it mean? What do these numbers mean? I'm going to have to tell you next week. I told my wife, I don't know how to end this. She said, just say the end. (laughs) Well, the end will be next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, Lord, we pray that we would not be content to simply have a passing understanding of what's going to unfold. Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who long, long, long to hear your voice. Lord, I pray for these men and women. I pray that you will speak to their hearts. Lord, I pray that they would be found among the population who are resurrected to life. Who can, with certainty, embrace the description of being wise. Because they've believed what God says. They've believed what you say about Jesus, about their sinful condition, and about the need for a Savior. And Lord, again, for that person who's struggling, who finds himself or herself in that hole, in that pit of darkness, Lord, I pray that they would receive Jesus as their Savior, that they would pray to, and confess their sin and turn to the Savior, and that they would point people to Jesus. And so, Lord, again, we thank you, we praise you, we glorify you, in Jesus' name, amen.